Thank you, everyone. It's uh, good to be here. It's good to be in the house of God. Thank you, Peter, for praying for me, and thank you for all the people that have been praying. Um, prayer works. I have a sermon, so that's good. And, uh, and praise God. Okay. If you're trying to convey a message, it's important that that message is clear. We can all learn a lesson from Parker Penn's. Uh, The company wanted to expand into Mexico and they had this slogan, a pen that won't leak in your pocket and embarrass you. For any Spanish speakers amongst us, you'll know that the word for embarrass is quite easily misspelt. And so what Parker Pens actually put on the billboards in Mexico said, a pen that won't leak in your pocket and impregnate you. (laughs) It's important to get that message clear, which of course begs the question about the gospel. The most important message out there, the message that we have been entrusted as believers to pass on to the people in our lives. When we come across unbelievers, what are we to say? How can we say it clearly? Because this is a message that we don't want to get lost in translation. And so when we're learning uh, what to say, we want to learn from the best. And so with that in mind, I'd like to learn from God. He's the greatest evangelist ever He's been evangelizing ever since original sin. And so to do that, if you can have your Bibles, I hope you do, please turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And in this um, chapter, we'll just be looking at the first nine verses, uh, but God is giving out an invitation. And this invitation has well, three messages that we'll look at in more detail. Uh, But it's a a beautiful invitation to the lost and it's an invitation that we can learn from so that when we speak to the lost, we can be copying the style of God. So we have multiple messages and uh, I'll try and uh, project these up here for you. So God's invitation, how do you put the most important message on earth? Here's the first message, come and be satisfied. Come and be satisfied. We'll see this in the first two verses of Isaiah 55. Read along with me, please. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. God is calling for people to come and this is the missionary heart of God. But I need to get one thing clear. God has no need. God is not a lonely God um, who wants some company because he's feeling a bit down. We need to understand that God is perfectly content. I mean, God is, is three persons. You have the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and each of them is perfectly content in their relationship with one another. Gloriously content, no more contentment possible. So this isn't an issue of God being lonely. Rather, he wants to spread that contentment and joy with human beings. He has it so good that he wants to share it with ordinary, anti-God, rebellious humans. And that's the missionary heart of God that we see here in Isaiah 55. And it goes out to all who are thirsty. As with any invitation, you can heed it or you can ignore it. I've been invited to my sister Rachel's uh, wedding in April, which is very exciting. Um, It's particularly exciting because having been through a wedding myself, this is one that I just get to go to. 
All I have to do is come. And she has to plan the, the cakes and the decorations and the venues and the speakers and the, you know, all the stuff that goes on. She has to do all the work and, and I just have to come. And that's a, a really good deal. Similar to what, what God is saying here. You'll notice the word come. It's mentioned four times in the first verse. It's really the, the thrust of what God is saying here. And it's, it's what the seeker has to do. But it's all they have to do. Because God has done the hard work. You read, um, thirst quenching, uh, satisfaction, the wine, the milk. This is all God's doing. And the, the seeker is just coming. And we know uh, what this hard work looked like. God had to send his son to earth. Jesus had to resist temptation, live a perfect life. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And he's coming back to judge. God has done all that. And God's even the one that works in the listener's heart so they're soft enough to respond. So we don't need to feel squeamish about telling people to come because God has already done all the hard work. And so when we're sharing the gospel, let's not just list facts, but give out that invitation to a banquet. If you uh, look carefully, you get a good picture of the people that God is inviting to this banquet. They are not people who have it all together. They are not satisfied. They have needs. They thirst. They can't afford bread. If they can't afford bread, then they can't afford wine and milk. Anything they do have, they can't satisfy themselves with. We get that from verse 2. They're trying things and, and nothing is filling that hole in their heart. And this language is is beautiful and metaphorical, but it does describe a harsh reality of the people in this world and of the people in our everyday life that we come across. You know, these people, they can't obtain true contentment and true satisfaction outside Christ. And the people who need Christ, they need him desperately because they have nothing at all. They, they have no satisfaction. And so all that lies before them is this life without true meaning and of course we know that after this life, if, if they haven't come to the name of the Lord, that they have eternal life outside of God in suffering. And so people need the Lord. But let's look at the text and see what God offers in response to their need. Uh, start of verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. What's God saying? You have a need and I can meet it. Read on. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is God saying? You have a need and I can meet it. And meet it with abundance. Verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The message that God is putting forward in this invitation is clear. It's come and be satisfied. So the people that we're going to speak to when we witness, they have needs. They're, they're real needs, personal needs, painful needs. And we need to be conscious of that. But we also need to be aware that their needs are met in Christ. If they will come to Christ, they will be fulfilled. And so we want to offer them this water, this bread, this wine, this milk, this good food, this rich food, 
that God offers here, we need to offer to those who need to hear it. What is all this stuff really, though? I assume we're not talking about literal water and literal bread. This is poetry, so metaphorical language is used. You may be aware, most of you have pretty good Bible reading skills, God himself is the one who brings satisfaction. God is the water that quenches the thirst. Outside of him, there is no satisfaction. God is the bread. God is the wine and the milk. God offers himself, and he is the one who meets the needs of the people. It's not so much something you get from God, you, you get God when you enter into a relationship. And this is a, um, a struggle for me personally, and I think a lot of you might have the same thing. It's, it's really hard to describe what we have in God, and doubly so to an unbeliever. It's really hard to convey how good we have it in Christ. And I think that's why this is uh, quite handy here in Isaiah. He's using some poetry and, and some metaphors. And that really does convey the message. You know, it is. When you know God, it is like being incredibly thirsty and then having that, that quenching water to satisfy you. It is like being starved and having not eaten in days and then you have to keep passing shop after shop because you have no money to buy bread. And then God puts on an incredible feast. That, that is what it's like. And that is a way to describe it. But I challenged myself this week to uh, you know, go into even more detail of, of how good is it to actually know God? How good do we actually have it? Well, I hope that as Christians here you can relate to what I'll say. But hopefully you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and, and you have a rough day ahead, but you can just rest in the knowledge that God is good and God will provide. That situation where you think you can't cope because you don't have the strength and God gives you that strength and encouragement. That, um, that hope inside us when we contemplate the future and we recognize that one day we'll rise with Christ and we'll be free from the very presence of sin, that hope is part of that satisfaction. And then there's that feeling and all believers will be able to experience this feeling, hopefully often, where you've, you've just done a, a nasty sin again and then you come before the Father's throne room and ask for mercy and he forgives you. That is an incredibly satisfying, wonderful feeling straight from God. And these are the, the kind of things that are hard to describe, are hard to convey. But it is our message that we've been entrusted with. You know, a relationship with God, it's not a chore, it's a joy. It's a joy right here, right now, in everyday life. And so when we're sharing with people, we need to convey that. Our God brings satisfaction. That's what we're testifying. Now, of course, what we know to be true and what we show to be true can be completely different. Dear friends, you would all acknowledge that God truly satisfies. There is no debate about that. But can other people see that satisfaction? And if other people can't see that satisfaction, they are going to get a mixed message. Yes, it's hard to describe how good God is, but that's our job. And our actions also have to convey the goodness of God. 
So whether we're going into you know, those, those opportunities where you can actually give a full gospel message or whether we're just you know, saying what we did on the weekend and mentioning that we went to church, whatever we're doing, whenever we're mentioning God, we need to convey that truth about God, that he is good and that he satisfies. This message needs to go out to a hurting, needy world. And we are the only bearers of that as Christians. So we need to make sure that we get that message out and that we don't confuse it. Positive emotions, simply smiling at God's grace, these things can convey the message. If you're in a desperate, trying situation and you're able to avoid despair and people can see that you're leaning on God, that conveys the message. So we praise God for being saved and it's good to do that. We've done that this morning. But let's not forget that God has not only saved us but satisfied us. And so we pass on that message, come and be satisfied. God's invitation continues. We'll read verses uh, 3 to 5 and we'll note that God not only says come and be satisfied but listen and live. Read with me please uh, from verses 3 to 5. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. All right, in this message, I will have to have a look at what God is saying to the original audience, and then we'll deduce what God is saying to us today. Before I get into the nitty-gritty, let me just fly over these verses uh, to get the gist of what's happening. Verse 3. Uh, God gives out the general invitation, listen and live. Very similar to what he said in the first two verses, he's passing on that message so that sinners can come to himself. Remembering, of course, this message was originally for the Jews. It's for us today, but the Jews got to hear it first. Uh, then God goes on to list abundant blessings that are about to happen uh, on Israel. He mentions he's going to make an everlasting covenant. And what is that everlasting covenant like? It's like his love for David. Verse 4, God describes what David was like, a leader, a commander, a witness. And then in verse 5, you get a glimpse of what the blessings will mean. Israel is, is raised to a place of prominence. The country Israel is kind of prestige on the world stage and, and nations come running. And that's the flyover look. But what I want to do, and, and bear with me as we use our brains, as it's healthy to do, uh, I want to go into God's covenant with David that uh, reference to the steadfast, sure love for David in verse 3. If we can understand uh, God's covenant with David, called the Davidic covenant, we'll have a better grasp of what God is saying here. And to understand that, there's nothing like using the Bible, so I'm going to use some Bible verses. You need not turn there for the sake of time. But we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is speaking to David. Uh, God is saying a lot of things. He really blesses David here. Uh, some of the things God tells David. David, you're going to be blessed. David, your name is going to be great. David, uh, this people and this land are going to have rest from their enemies. And these are all wonderful truths. Uh, God fulfills them in the life of David. 
Where it gets really interesting, and the Davidic covenant really comes into prominence, is uh, 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, which reads like this. God says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. This is the eternal part. This is the most significant part of all the things God says to David. David is going to have a forever kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Uh, David and his descendants are going to reign forever. So that's the uh, covenant. Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 14 to 18, gives really quality elaboration on this. So good, I've actually put it up here for you guys to read. So let's see what Jeremiah has to say. He had word from God, that's why it's so good. So Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will be saved, and Judah will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. As you look at those words, uh, we see some, some wonderful truths that help us understand God's heart behind the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah, uh, the prophet, is speaking at a time when David still had a literal descendant on the throne. But Jeremiah knew that the future would hold the fulfilment. We see him predicting here, prophesying here. He mentioned the days are coming. Um, Fulfill the promise. He knew that the Davidic covenant would be a future event in fulfilment. Uh, What he also says is that it's going to be fulfilled by this branch. And then what is this branch? He goes on to explain. He comes from David. Okay, So he's going to be one of David's descendants. This branch is also in a position of power. He's going to execute righteousness and justice. So he's going to be a king. And he's going to be a very good king. So he's going to be a good king. He's going to come from David. And this branch is a reference to the Messiah. And you can see why the Jews would look forward to it. Look at that, that great bit in the middle. Think if you're a Jew, how good would this sound? Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will be saved, and Judah will dwell securely. That's, that's really good news uh, for the Israelites. Yes, there's uh, prophecies of all sorts of horrible things that happen in the future, but this is hope for Israel. And it's due to the branch of David, the good and righteous king. So as I said, this branch is a descendant of David. As such, he satisfies the stipulation that God made, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. So when the Messiah reigns forever, since he's a descendant of David, that is a fulfillment of the covenant. This branch is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, and that's why we call him Jesus Christ, because Christ means Messiah. So we're talking about Jesus fulfilling all these promises Um, that are talked about in 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 33, and referenced here in Isaiah. This is a future event. Yes, Jesus has come, but he'll set up his kingdom uh, at a future date. Future to us, I don't know when it is, don't ask me. All right, so hopefully we've got a bit of an idea about the Davidic covenant, but particularly who it points towards. If you can't remember any of that, it points towards Jesus. Just, Just remember that. So what does that have to do with listening and live? Let's go back to Isaiah 55. With that background, let's see if we can make some sense of this. Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
God is urging the listeners to pay close attention. Um, I love the translation that says, listen diligently. It really captures the essence. You know, if you're listening diligently, you're really focusing to what God has to say. And with good reason, because what God has to say is incredibly important. So listen diligently. Why should we listen? Why should we come? So that your soul may live. Here, so that your soul may live. That, here, so that your soul may live. That is just as applicable to you today as it was to the Israelites back then. If you want your soul to live, you have to come to God. There is no other way. That was true for the Israelites. That's true for us today. And if you don't come to God, your soul will not live. It will die. It will perish forever in the lake of fire where God's unquenchable wrath will torment them for rejection of their maker. That is not what I want for people. That is not what God wants for people. That is why God is saying, listen so that your soul may live. God continues though. And he speaks to Israel as you continue in verse 3. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So here God promises to make an everlasting covenant with Israel. Interesting. Straight afterwards, he references his steadfast love for David. So God is clearly referencing that Davidic covenant that we looked at before. So if you get saved, and if you do listen, if you do come to God, you can partake in the blessings of the Davidic covenant. Now what does that mean? Partake in the blessings of the Davidic covenant. All right. In the most obvious sense, Jesus is going to reign as King and Messiah. You get to be a part of that. You get to be in that kingdom. You get to experience Jesus reigning and the time of uh, peace and prosperity that that gives. When Jesus fulfills the covenant, you get to be there. And that, again, is true for the uh, Jews and it's true for the Gentiles. And praise God that you know, we've been ushered into this, this kingdom. It's, it's incredible. So when God promises these things, uh, we get to have that eternal life that includes experiencing Jesus as Lord and acknowledged as King. And that's going to be good, praise the Lord. But there is an extra special meaning for the Jews, and I do want to go into it because it is here in our text. So you might be aware, Isaiah, uh, the second half of Isaiah is uh, written towards the people in captivity, the Jews that are in Babylon. Okay? And when you keep that in the back of your mind, you get an extra significance from the words that Isaiah speaks. Have a look at verse 5. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. This is saying several things to the Jews. Uh, number one, you're going to be a nation, you're going to be a country. This is written to a people that are in Babylon, and their country's been wiped off the map, but they're going to get it back. God is good. Uh, it also says they're going to get their land. Okay? Their land is going to be theirs. And that is good because that's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, which I won't get into. They're going to be a country, they're going to have their land, and they're going to be at peace. And what's really interesting about those three things that God promises to Israel is that God also promised those things to David. And he gave those things to David in David's lifetime. He's going to give those things to Israel in Israel's lifetime. Land, uh, a nation, and peace. But, and I'm sure you noticed this most of all, not only is Israel a nation in its land experiencing peace, but it's a leader of other nations. They're coming running, responding to the call. My standard biblical interpretation, modus operandi, is to take things literally, and so that's what I'm going to do. 
Israel is going to be given a place of prominence. Other nations are going to come running. And this does make sense when you read uh, particularly the Old Testament. The Jews are God's chosen people. He has uh, a special love for them. And if he gives them a place of prominence, that's consistent with his character. And so we're happy for the Jews. And what I find really interesting is that in Isaiah 55, he doesn't specifically mention that he will fulfill the Davidic covenant. In verse 3, you'll notice he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So there's this, this new covenant kind of thrown in there um, with ties to the Davidic covenant. So the Davidic covenant is kind of the background as God makes this covenant with Israel. And what I believe God is saying is the Davidic covenant, God gave David you know, a position of authority, a position of rulership, a kingship, and Israel, in a similar way, God is going to give them a, a place of authority in a future day. But we're Gentiles looking in, and what we can be glad about is that we get the best part of the promise. Of all the things mentioned there, the best part is the eternal life, the eternal life that we get to spend with Christ, um, who is the Messiah. And we can be really glad that God has not only saved us, but he lets us live forever with Christ. That's the best bit. Both Jews and Gentiles get to live forever with Christ. If they come to him, the Jews get a few extra perks. All right. So God is inviting all people. His invitation asks people to come and be satisfied. His invitation asks people to listen and live. Thirdly and finally, his invitation asks people to forsake sin and experience grace. This is the third message. This is my favorite message. Forsake sin, experience grace. Let's read verses 6 to 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This whole invitation is, is beautiful from God these verses, again, are beautiful. They're conveying this delightful truth about God's grace. And so let's delve into it. Verse 6, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Interesting. The passage has asked um, the people to listen. It's asked them to come. It's even used the word see or behold. Now it's asking them to seek. Now to seek, I think, is something a lot more active, you know, you can just look or you can just listen, but to seek, you know, if you're playing hide and seek, you have to get out of the room and, and search the house and look in all the nooks and find everyone. So to seek is a much more um, active verb. It's no small thing to seek. And so I think in verse 6 you have a, a subtle change in the message. And again, I think that's further evidenced if you keep reading, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Very interesting words. While he may be found, while he is near. It is not saying that God only orchestrates uh, salvation on certain Tuesdays or that sometimes he's out to lunch and you have to come back at a more convenient time. That's not what it says. We know what God is like. He's omnipresent. He's always willing to save. His arms are open like the father waiting for the prodigal son. So we know that these verses are not talking about restrictions in God's calendar. Rather, what Isaiah is saying here is seek the Lord 
now. When can God be found? He can be found right now. So seek him now. When is God near? He is near right now. So seek him now. And so there's this urgency from Isaiah reflecting the urgency from God. We want people to be saved, but we don't want them to put this decision off. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we want them to be saved now. There's this desperation, this pleading that comes through in verse 6. And there's an obvious lesson for us as Christians when we evangelize. And I say when we evangelize, um, because we are evangelizing, we're called to be evangelists in everyday life, that's our duty. When we evangelize, are we desperate? Do we plead? Do we say, get saved today? Because there's nothing wrong with asking for an immediate response. We see it over and over in the scriptures. Consider uh, the brevity of life to the length of the afterlife. There's a good reason to plead. Consider uh, the number of conversations that you have in a week and how many of them you can actually talk about Jesus to someone in. Why wouldn't you in that moment be desperate and plead with them to come to salvation? I just don't want us, and look, I'm very conscious of myself here, so I preach this to myself. I don't want us to be people that when we share the gospel, we just share it and afterwards say, check, I presented the gospel, mission accomplished. That's not it. We don't just share the facts of the gospel, we share the heart of the gospel. We need to show genuine concern for the saved, uh, for the lost, when we evangelize. And nothing speaks genuine concern like pleading with them to be saved today. So that's a message that we can think about while we're evangelizing. Don't be too proud to plead. We move on. You'll see in verse 7, an important part of uh, the gospel message. We dare not neglect it. Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. First part, repentance. Repentance is what God is asking for. Repentance is a critical component of the gospel. You can't get to the table and drink the water and eat the food unless you give up your previous life. And I love the words used here. Forsake um, his way and his thoughts. So if you want to become a Christian, you have to give up your whole way of doing things and come to God. Everything that you have been doing gets flipped upside down and you have a new life, a new way of doing things. You know, God, you don't just add God to your life. You know, he adds you to his kingdom and your whole way is changed. And, and thoughts, you forsake your thoughts. Previously, you have wicked thoughts, sinful thoughts, thoughts of self-interest. Now, God has changed your thoughts, given you a new heart, and you think about him, pleasing him, and the things of eternity. And so we have this, this repentance which is required. Forsake your way, forsake your um, thoughts, basically forsake sin. To come, you must forsake sin. And this repentance is, is critical. And we know uh, there's other Christians out there um, you know, sharing the gospel without repentance. Shame on them if they do that. All the more reason for us to clearly proclaim repentance when we share the gospel. But the second half of verse 7, what happens to the person who is repentant? Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Those who forsake sin 
experience grace. And that is, that is a good thing. Compassion, uh, the word used here, compassion. Uh, compassion captures genuine concern, you know, that genuine um, wanting to help someone in a situation because of your love for them. And we can be compassionate at times. When God's compassionate, when he wants to help, uh, he, he blasts sin out of the water, he puts a new heart in there, he gives daily grace, you know, he sends the Holy Spirit to help. God does compassion very well. He genuinely cares for and is able to help people. Look at Jesus. Jesus had compassion for his disciples. He had compassion for his friends, compassion for his mother, uh, compassion for the crowds, compassion for the sick, compassion for the sinners, compassion for the people nailing him to a cross. And so this is the compassion that, you know, we want to highlight the compassion of God to others and we want to emulate the compassion of God towards others. Abundantly pardon. What another uh, great phrase. That, that's what God will do for those who are repentant. Think of a governor um, who pardons a criminal. And, and that's the end of the story. He pardons the criminal. The criminal is pardoned. The criminal goes free. And that, that's it. You, you're either pardoned or you're not. And yet God is said to abundantly pardon, which obviously speaks of God's generosity. But there's more to it than that. We're not once-off criminals that have committed a crime. Our list of crimes is huge. It's, it's basically endless. We have a multitude of sins that need to be forgiven. And so when God pardons, he abundantly pardons because there's an abundance of sins. But also on the flip side of the coin, there's an abundance of grace. There is more grace than um, can, you can even fathom. There's enough grace to cover all of my sins. And I know how long that list is. And enough to cover all of your sins, and you know how long that list is, and all the sins of the world, and that seems like a really big number, but even that doesn't compare with the amount of grace God has. He abundantly pardons. And that is uh, something incredible. And that is a message we need to proclaim. Because sin is out there, um, and some people are really aware of their sin. And it's a good thing, but it's not a good thing if they think they're too sinful for God, if they think they're too rotten for God, not worth enough, uh, God's love couldn't possibly forgive me this. We need to, to speak of the abundant pardon. And uh, that starts with what God's done in our life. And so we praise God for that and pass on that message. And so we get to verses 8 and 9. And verses 8 and 9 uh, really wrap up this invitation from God. Read with me, please, verse 8. Uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, uh, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Great verses, uh, verses that have been used to uh, describe the wisdom of God. His ways are so much higher than ours. We can't completely fathom him because he is transcendent. He is above us. He is um, such a better thinker than us because he's been around for eternity. All true, not quite the main point though. In context, you have these verses coming right after verse 7. Okay, verse 7, um, forsake sin, experience grace. That's the context that these verses are in. And so when God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, what he's communicating is a few things. Firstly, your thoughts are sinful, your thoughts are wicked. My thoughts are full of grace and goodness and abundant pardon. And therefore, if you want uh, to become a Christian, you need to forsake your thoughts and start thinking about eternity. 
And that explains also the contrasts there in verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. You better believe it. God's grace is way higher than our sin. He is so separate from us in terms of his goodness and kind heart and compassion compared to our natural evil tendencies. His ways are much higher than our ways. His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. Our thoughts are full of uh, pride and self-interest and deceit. And his thoughts are full of compassion and love and goodness. They're so much higher than ours. And so these verses are really highlighting you know, the grace. If sinners forsake their ways, they get to experience this grace that is so much greater. And that's a good thing and that's the message we need to convey. And so we, um, we come to an end of the invitation. What a beautiful picture of grace to end it on. And I hope, brothers and sisters, you've uh, enjoyed hearing God's invitation this morning. I hope you've been refreshed as we delved into the generous and gracious character of God because it's good for us to go over the gospel. It's good for us to remind ourselves of it. Um, you know, lest we get too puffed up, lest we think something of ourselves when it's all God's grace or lest we think so little of ourselves that we never actually do anything and too little of God's empowerment. So it's good to hear the gospel. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it this morning. But moreover, I hope that you have a, a, a message that you can pass on to the lost. Hopefully just something, you know, Talk about them getting the satisfaction in Jesus in this life and how good you can have it. And then, of course, that life, uh, you get to live eternally and eternally with Jesus. And, of course, if they forsake their sin, they get to experience grace, uh, amazing grace, um, sometimes better sung than said, but it is, it's incredible. So please, present the truth. Do so urgently. Uh, do so with care for the soul. But, of course... I can't finish this morning without extending this invitation now. And maybe there's someone here who doesn't know God. Maybe there's one soul, just one, who doesn't know God. And if there is one soul that doesn't know God, that soul is more valuable than the world. Because what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? And so if you're here this morning and you don't know God, if you don't know God, you desperately need God. You desperately need to come to Christ. The blessings have been made clear. You have everything to gain so you need to be saved and you need to be saved now while God is near um, so I pray that you will do so please speak to someone if you, if you don't know God you don't put this decision off get saved today speak to me speak to Jeff speak to someone just don't leave without, without knowing God and that's the message from today come and be satisfied let's, let's pray together Our Heavenly Father, um, we have just heard of your grace, of your compassion, of the salvation, of the satisfaction, of all the good things that you provide us with. Lord, we lift up our hearts in praise. We, we thank you. Uh, you deserve so much more than our praise, but we give it to you. Uh, Lord, we, we just thank you that you are so good. We just pray, Lord, as we go out into the week, we just pray for this week, Lord, um, this is another week that you've given us in your grace. And so we pray for this week that we might be your messengers. Lord, give us uh, opportunity this week to speak your gospel to someone. And as we do so, God, I pray that you give us courage. Lord, that you give us um, the words to say clearly. That you give us genuine compassion for lost souls. And Lord, even this week, we just pray that this message will get out there and that people will hear it and that people will respond 
And we thank you that you love these people and ask that you help us to do the same. And Lord, uh, anyone unsaved here today, you know who they are. They know who they are. We just pray that your spirit will really, really soften their heart and that they'll come to know you now, God, uh, and experience all of those wonderful things, uh, Lord, that, that you offer. And we pray this for them, Lord, um, with genuine concern and genuine confidence in your ability to save God because there's no sin that is too great for your grace. And so we pray all these things in the wonderful, blessed name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.